You're listening to the podcast for Asbury United Methodist Church. Join us every Sunday at 9 a.m. for small groups, 10 a.m. for worship, or anytime at asburybosier.org. I was in the sound booth last week while Matt was preaching, and in the last 10 minutes of his sermon, I realized he was preaching my sermon for this week. And I was like, oh, no. (laughs) But my prayer for you this morning is that during that time you were asleep, or zoning out, or you just want to need to hear it again, you know what I mean? Um, so for those of you that don't know, I am currently pursuing a master's degree at LSUS in counseling to become a therapist, and uh, wrapping up summer classes this semester, and one of those classes is marriage and family therapy. And one of the projects for that class was that each of us had to kind of create a genogram uh, describing our family history. Now a genogram, if you don't know, is kind of like a fancy family tree, but it is a little more complex in that you can add different relational dynamics into that thing. So this, you can't read it unless you have like supervision, uh, is the Harry Potter relationship genogram. And that square that's like kind of off to the left center is Harry. To the right is the word Voldemort. You see all those lines and squiggly lines. There's a key that says like fused hostility. Uh, Him and Voldemort don't get along forever. Uh, if you see the green lines kind of going down to the bottom, those are his friendships, and the squiggly lines are his best friends, Ron and Hermione. So a genogram has a family tree dynamic, like your, your, your parents, your grandparents, all that kind of stuff. But you can also add other components, like what are those relationships like? What are some relational patterns? Other genograms might look at addiction. Is there a history of alcohol abuse or drug abuse in your family? And you might have different symbols that symbolize that. Or maybe it's just focused on medical attention. What's your medical history? Does your family have diabetes or heart disease or something like that? So a genogram is a a family tree-ish diagram that you can add different dynamics to to kind of get a a bigger picture of your family history and story. And in our context, in the family and marriage uh, therapy class, we were looking at it from a relational dynamic, an emotional dynamic. We were looking at our family history for the past generations and what those relationships looked like to see if we could get a better understanding of ourselves. Because all of us as humans, we're individuals, but we live in the context of a community and we live in the context of a family and family history. And those histories and those systems shape who we are. So the goal of a genogram is to help us understand who we are within our specific system and how that might shape how we show up in relationships and in our own families. Um, and as the, the group, uh, the class went through these presentations, a theme was very apparent in our group of aspiring therapists, that almost all of us have trauma in our background and brokenness in our family background. And there's something in the therapy field that the people that pursue that profession needed therapy in their lives as well. They're pursuing a healing career for the healing that they themselves needed. That's not a universal truth. It's not 100% accurate. But I'd say in that classroom, it was 90% accurate. That when we looked at our genograms, our family stories and relational patterns, there was a general consensus of brokenness that we were trying to figure out and, and overcome and recover in our own lives, in our own careers. Now this past month, Matt has been preaching on the almost faith of Abraham. And I really love this sermon series, it's kind of tongue in cheek, but Abraham is propped up as the founding father of three major religions. And even the New Testament goes on and on about how we have to have the faith of Abraham. But when we look at Abraham himself and his stories, it doesn't really add up. He's not a perfect 
father figure. He's not a perfect founding father of a faith. In fact, there's a lot of brokenness in his life. And if you were to examine Abraham's family tree and look at it more closely, you would see generations of brokenness. So we'll look at that right now. We'll kind of take a look at what this looks like. All right, so you have Abraham at the top. You have Sarah and he has Isaac. To the left here, you have a woman named Keturah who was one of his wives that he had six kids with after Sarah. Now, I went to seminary. I grew up Southern Baptist, which means we read the Bible a lot. I had never heard of her until three days ago. Abraham had another wife with six kids later on in the story. It's like one sentence in Genesis 25. So Abraham had kids from three different women. Uh, now, there's a part, before they even had kids, Abraham and Sarah were married. They were traveling around trying to find the promised land. They had a famine going on. And Abraham, several times, when they went to uh, Egypt to find refuge and find food and, and shelter, several times he told his wife, Sarah, you are so beautiful. And starting off really good, right? That's a great way to start off a day. You're looking so beautiful tonight. You're looking so beautiful that if I come down to Egypt with you, they're going to kill me and take you. So I need you to act like you're my sister. All right, goes a little, <laughs> start off strong. You look beautiful, ended poorly. I need you to act like you're my sister. Uh, so they don't kill me and so that we can survive. And that happens like several times. And back then they didn't have marriage and family therapists. <laughs> this, is a, this is a huge part, piece of brokenness in their family trust. So that's how the story starts off with Abraham and, and Sarah is lying about uh, their relationship. And then eventually uh, they're not having any luck having children that God promised them. So Sarah says, hey, I want you to sleep with my servant Hagar. So there's a little bit of a kind of, of rape and, and power abuse uh, in Abraham's story. And they have, uh, Hagar becomes pregnant with Ishmael. But now as soon as Ishmael gets born, I don't know what the plan is there. Are they just going to like take the kid from Hagar? That's not great. But what ends up happening is there's jealousy and bitterness. And eventually Sarah says, we have to get Ishmael and Hagar out of here. So Abraham and Sarah send them into the desert to die. So Abraham essentially molests Hagar, gets her pregnant, and then sends her and the son out into the desert to die. This is the founding father of the Bible. And it doesn't get any better. Uh, they finally eventually have a son, Isaac. And at some point, Abraham takes Isaac up to a mountain in order to sacrifice him. Now, I know there's more to the story. God told him to do that. There's a lot there. But just that alone isn't really father of the year material. I have a hard time resonating with the story, honestly, as, as a human, um, that Abraham would be willing to take his son up there and make the sacrifice. There's a lot of it just doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't add up. Now, Matt did a great job last week unpacking some of the complexities of that story. Uh, one thing that Matt un unpacked a little bit was how Isaac responded to that event. After that, we don't really hear much from Isaac. He's kind of withdrawn. Matt implied that perhaps he had PTSD. He was very passive and kind of let life just happen to him. So Abraham, we have the story of Sarah and Abraham in Egypt. We have the story of Hagar and Ishmael uh, being sent into the desert. We have the story of Isaac almost being sacrificed. That's, that's just the first, that's, that's Abraham. Now when we get to Isaac, Isaac gets married. He has two sons, Esau and, and Jacob. Esau is the oldest who, uh, by all intents and purposes, should inherit, Abraham, uh, inherit Isaac's wealth and power and prestige. But over time, Jacob continues to deceive Esau, eventually to the point where his mom... Uh, Rebecca and Esau or and Jacob deceive a dying Isaac, a blind Isaac, and, and they steal uh, the birthright from the rightful person Esau. So there's a lot of brokenness there. And what's crazy about this whole story is that God's with them in all this, and God even blesses that. God allows Jacob to get away with it. It's a weird story. 
So that is Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, Esau. Now Jacob, uh, who is the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, starts those 12 tribes with four different women. Two are his wives, and that's, there's some weird stories there, and two are concubines. So the, the 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, come from four different women. And one of the famous stories Matt mentioned last week as well is the story of one of those sons, Joseph, being sold into slavery by the other 11 sons. So if we were to look at this four generations of, from Abraham, including Abraham, what we see time and time again is just brokenness that just continues to move on. And this is the book of Genesis, which means our beginnings, our origins. This is the original family of God. And what we see for four generations here is brokenness that continues. It makes me, one thing I want to say too, it's an unbroken string of brokenness, but what we see in that also is God is with them in the muck. And he doesn't necessarily clean it up. He doesn't make it all better. He's just with them in it. And maybe there's some encouragement for some of us today that when we look at our family line, our genogram, we just see an unbroken string of brokenness. And my encouragement to you is, if that's true, look to the story a little bit deeper and see that God is with them in the muck. Now, when you get to the next book of, of the Bible, Exodus, a little, bit, uh, a little bit later on, God says this in Exodus 34. Now, this is one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament, which is the Lord is gracious, he's slow to anger, he's rich in love. That's kind of, it comes from here. This is the voice translation. It says, eternal God, full of compassion and mercy, slow to anger, abundant in loyal love and truth, who maintains loyal love to thousands of people, who forgives wrongdoing, rebellion, and sin. So that's the famous part. Now, part B of that verse, or that section, says this, but he does not allow sin to go unpunished. And he extends the consequences of a father's sin to his children, his grandchildren, and even to the third and fourth generations. That's the less popular part of the passage, that the, the consequences of sin bleed over into generations. And there's an interesting tension here. I want you to hear this again. God forgives sin, but sin does not go unpunished. This back-to-back -back verses. God forgives sin, but sin does not go unpunished. What does that mean? It reminds me of a quote from Richard Rohr, who says, we are not punished for our sins, but we are punished by our sins. And in, in this verse, what he's saying is God does not actively seek out our punishment and retribution for our sins. But that does not mean that sins don't have natural consequences. If you do something that's wrong or evil, there's going to be natural consequences to that thing. And he's saying that the, the sins of a father that go unchecked, just in the, the pain that happens in, in one family unit that goes unchecked and unhealed and unprocessed, that pain will just trickle down generation after generation after generation until someone does something about it. We see that in Abraham. It started with Abraham, and it just kind of kept going down the line. Story after story of brokenness. Now, my legal name is Thomas Walter Moore IV. All right? And I didn't really know my great-grandfather that well because just age, right? Like, he wasn't around as much in my life. But I did know Thomas Walter Moore Jr. pretty well. And he was a character. And he was an angry and a mean guy, honestly. He did a lot of damage to his kids. And I knew Thomas Walter Moore III very well. It was my father. And because of my grandfather's personality and his 
the way that he raised his family. And perhaps that sin before him with Thomas Moore Sr., I don't know. But because of Thomas Moore Jr., Thomas Moore III, and the siblings all wrestled and struggled with alcoholism. There's a lot of brokenness there. And I can see in my own life uh, the uh, generations of brokenness that started somewhere, uh, but I now inherited Thomas Moore IV. And there's a pressure on me. Like, honestly, for me, I feel a struggle with that name. If I was going to have another son, I struggled with whether to name him Thomas Moore V because of just this lineage of, of brokenness. But there's a pressure in there for me to say, how am I going to do something different? How am I going to uh, break the cycle? How am I going to overcome these generations of unprocessed pain and hurt? I'm still working on that. It's still a work in progress. God says, I forgive sin but sin does not go without consequence, and the consequences can extend to generations. There's a quote from Terry Real uh, that I like a lot. I just want to read it to you guys. Uh, it kind of resonates with this, this whole topic. He says, Family dysfunction rolls down from generation to generation like a fire in the woods, taking down everything in its path until one person in one generation has the courage to turn and face the flames. That person brings peace to their ancestors and spares the children the follow. The Old Testament speaks regularly about the sins of the fathers. And it's not just with Abraham, it goes on. When we get to the story of David, and the, and the story of David and Bathsheba, God says there's going to be an impact on this decision to, to take this man's wife and murder him. There's going to be an impact for generations in your family after this sin. And, and David please says, please don't. And God says, I'm going to skip Solomon for some reason. He's like, Solomon's not going to get the brunt of it, but Solomon's kids are. And Solomon was a rough, had a rough patch. And he was known as being a wise guy, but he also had some brokenness in his life. But as soon as he passes away, the kingdom falls apart because his sons lack leadership and, they, and they, they, they rebel and they have a civil war and it's messy. So even David's sins generations later had an impact on his family line. The sins of our fathers, it's, it's a theme in scripture. There's also a, a theme of, of trying to overcome that and break that and restore that. So I know that like there's a lot of, the last five minutes have been just downer. <laughs> like, hey, families are hard and brokenness just continues. It's contagious. Good luck. I get that's like downer. <laughs> I would say that the reverse is true as well, though. A family that is healthy and, and whole and, and, and working on it and, and trying to do right, that's also contagious. I have friends that are part of generational blessings whose grandfather was, was, was a great, healthy person and patriarch and, and, and the grandmother was great and then their parents were healthy and then they're healthy and then their kids are like It also works the other way where families can be restored to find health as well. So I don't want to just be a downer. Both things can be contagious. The, the culture and the environment that we establish in our family can have an impact for generations to come in, in positive and negative ways. So I want to close with uh, just some practical questions. I showed like the genogram or like Abraham's family tree. And just when we think about ourselves in a system, uh, we are parts of a system. We are cogs of a machine. And we all have different roles that we play, different personality types that we have, different ways that we contribute to our family system. And I would say if you are part of a family system that is dysfunctional, it might not be your fault, but it might be your responsibility. And you are playing a part in that system that keeps the system going in a certain way, for better or for worse. Uh, we are individuals, part of a connected community, and that community is a system, and we have roles within that system, for better or for worse. So I want to ask, I'm going to list like a few roles and kind of describe them. 
and then ask yourself, is there a role here that really resonates with me? Like I resonate, I think I might be lean in on this certain thing. Or do you recognize other parts of your family, other members of your family that fit into these roles? I also want to say these roles are not an exhaustive list. There's probably like 50 different roles. These are just some common ones. All right. So maybe you are the achiever of your family. And some of you guys are like, nope, that's, that's not me. <laughs> maybe you're the achiever of the family. This, this role involves a person who, who is excellent in everything, who feels the pressure to be successful. Um, their success represents the success of their family. And there's a, they're constantly trying to maintain a positive image for their family. Heroes often take on adult-like responsibilities at a young age. So if you are an achiever or a hero, sometimes even as a kid, you're feeling the pressure to, to meet certain standards. That way your family can have this positive image. That's the achiever. On the other side, you have the scapegoat. This typically belongs to a person who acts out or behaves disruptively within the family. You might call the person a black sheep. They may express, express their frustration or dissatisfaction with how the family operates through negative behaviors such as defiance or rebellion. And sometimes they're just like, they're called the symptom bearer. They are the person that, hey, this family is dysfunctional, but everyone on, is acting on the outside like everything is great, but there's one person who just can't act like it's great. And they become like the, the, the black sheep of the family and, and they're rebellious or doing negative behavior, but really they are like bearing the load of the dysfunction themselves. They are like the expression of what's going on internally. Because uh, everyone else is acting like it's great, but they're the person that's like, it's not that great. Uh, the other person might be a, a peacemaker or a mediator. The person who takes on the responsibility of diffusing conflicts between family members. They may try to bring reconciliation between broken relationships. They minimize tensions, or they are a bridge between different individuals. There are a lot of times in my life and, and, and in certain environments in my family where I felt like the peacemaker uh, or the diffuser. Uh, another role is the lost child. This is the person that just withdraws almost entirely from the family. They are emotionally distant. They may feel overlooked or marginalized, um, and they seek isolation and, and they seek solace in isolation, hobbies, or activities outside the family. Uh, another person might be the mascot or the jester. They use humor to disfuse the tension and the brokenness in the family. They try to distract from the underlying issues that are going on. Another person might be an enabler. Uh, they, they act, and this makes sense, right? You guys have heard of the enabler. Someone that enables or supports unhealthy behaviors or dysfunctional patterns within the family. They think they're trying to protect the family or cover up for the family, but what they're doing is perpetuating uh, the cycle of, of brokenness. And the last person or last role might be a victim. Someone who constantly portrays themselves as the victim of circumstances or of other family, mem family members' actions. They may evoke sympathy or garner attention by emphasizing their suffering or their helplessness. Now, once again, there's, there's plenty of other roles in, in family systems and, and work environments and stuff like that as well. Um, but the point is this, that we all exist in a system and we all have parts to play in that system. And sometimes that's healthy and sometimes that's, that's unhealthy. Um, if we feel like our family system is unhealthy and dysfunctional, the question we can ask is, how am I contributing to this system? to keep it in a dysfunctional state? And what might I do differently? What would it look like to try and change that in order to create disruption? I was in, we were in Sunday school class earlier today and I, I mentioned a John Maxwell quote, uh, which is, uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And so John Maxwell is a business leader, he's a, he's a thought leader and stuff like that. And he's talking about in the business context, but I think this is also true in the family context. 
that the culture of a family system, the environment is so hard to change. And it's easy for us to come up with strategies. I'm going to do this differently, do this differently. But then to immediately face overwhelming resistance. It can be hard to change the culture of a family because culture eats strategy for breakfast. So what role do you play in the system? How are you contributing to the system? And what would it look like to try and change that? In the words of Terry Real, what would it look like to turn around and face the flame? Or in the words of Moses in Exodus, what might it look like to break the generational cycles of unprocessed hurt, shame, and sin? Uh, I want to close with an encouragement. There's the Genesis, the Old Testament, the New Testament as well. There's full of broken people. But the, the gospel, the good news of the Bible is that they're not alone. God is with them. God is present.